join with me in turning in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, the seventh chapter, and the last verse. The last verse of Hebrews chapter 7 will be our text for this morning. Please follow along as I read verse 28. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Shall we pray? Lord God, hear our prayer. We bow before you in our hearts and in our minds, and by your Spirit we would approach you with due deference and appeal to you this morning, Lord, your overarching care for what we do and say from the pulpit we do and say from the pew, what we do and say in our fellowship dinner afterwards and our meeting. Oversee this with tender mercies and great grace. As you are our shepherd, we need leading. And so lead us even to Christ our shepherd, but this morning to Christ our great high priest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How much risk? How much risk are you willing to allow in your relationship to God? How much risk are you willing to take in drawing near unto God? Is there a risk in approaching God, and what are those risks? There was a man, Job. A book is written about a portion of his life, a righteous man, <clears throat> whom God tested. And we can all read about his testing can all read about his trials brought about by Satan but by the permission of God in succeeding waves of agony. Following upon that came his friends, four of them, who sat with him in his agony. And many are the words that were brought forth from the mouths of his friends most of it of no help in his time of need and full of accusation. The accusation is you must have sinned against God for this to be happening to you. Repent. It was in the mind of Job a, a helplessness. There was a lack in his relationship with God that he was aware of because he is perhaps from the oldest time that the Bible records in history. 
before Moses, before the priests, before that law, Job. And he laments in his situation because in approaching God, there is a gulf. And in Job chapter 9, from the depths of this agonizing heart comes the words of Job declaring to us his lack of relationship with God. It is not a lack of relationship because he does not want one and does not have one with God, but there is something that needs to be in place for him to have a close relationship with God. Speaking of his contention with God, he's asked himself in his own mind and his friends, in essence, why is this happening to me? Why did I lose all my flocks? Why did I lose all my wealth? Why did I lose my children? Why did I lose my health? And he wants to speak with God. And in chapter 9, verse 32, Job says, For he, God, is not a man. He is not a man as I am. That's theology, folks, that God is not a man, and he's not as Job is, and he knows this. He is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. He's not on an equal plane with me. He's not my big buddy. He's not my neighbor. He's God, and he's not a man, and I am How can I take God to court and say, why have you treated me seemingly so unjustly? And then he proclaims why he cannot go to court. He says, nor is there any mediator between us. There is no mediator between us for any approach unto God for Job at his time is laden with risk a divine outbreak of a man questioning God. I can't question God. I have no one to go to God for me to stand between us. And notice how he says this, who may lay his hand on both of us. The picture is a courtroom. The picture is of two adversaries with two different views, and it needs a mediator to come between them, an intermediary, to put his hand on both of them and in essence say, come together. And he can't defend himself. There's an ancient quote that's been attributed to many great men, to Abraham Lincoln, to Benjamin Franklin, to many others. It's been used in many places. Let's just say it's a good quote. It's a quote about the courtroom. The quote is this, he who defends himself in court has a fool for a lawyer. He who defends himself in court has a fool for a lawyer, and it goes beyond that, the one attributed to Benjamin Franklin, goes on to say, and a jackass for a client. 
No matter how you shake it, if you try to defend yourself in court, you're both a fool and a jackass. Can we even imagine what it's like to try and defend yourself before God? What are you then? Twice fool? A bigger donkey? I'm not sure. But it's certainly a risk. To come before the living, holy God and question Him. Why is this happening to me? Throughout time, God begin, began to rectify this situation that man has no mediator between himself and God. At a point of history and time, a dispensation, an age of time, God raised up Moses. From the land of Egypt, God sent Moses back to deliver his people out. And having freed them from the clutches of Pharaoh, he wrote a law. And in that law, he provided a way in which God's people may draw near unto him, for God's intention was to dwell with his people in a tabernacle, in a tent. A tent that was named by God himself the tabernacle of meeting. Job cried out, I can't go before God. I can't meet with him. There's no one to go before me. There's no mediator to stand in my place. And God then cures the situation with his people Israel and all who would join themselves to them that you may approach God, but you need a mediator. And so from one tribe he raised up and called them priests. Those who would bring men near to God to meet with him. An intermediary. The tribe of Levi is the tribe. The high priestly line is the line of Aaron, Moses' brother. The first high priest, Aaron and then successive priests from that line. But I ask you again, how much risk are you willing to entertain in approaching God? Because we have been studying the Levitical priests, we've been studying the high priests of Israel, and we have found that there is lack among them. That they were not indeed complete that they were human. It is what Job was calling out for. I need a man to stand with me, someone who understands me. God's not a man. How can he understand me? How can I go before him? And so God provided men from a tribe, the tribe of Levi, to go before men and represent them to God. But they were indeed men, and they were indeed fallen men, sinful men as Hebrews reminded us, men who have weakness. They are subject to error, which then makes the approach of God by the people with them subject to greater, higher, hear me, risk. 
risk. The risk is approaching holy God inappropriately, without reverence, without doing what God has said one must do before one approaches him, lest God break out against him and you die. Job knew there was a gulf. He knew there was risk. And he begged, please send. And God did. But in sending these humans of the tribe of Levi, we find that they have failure and were prone to error. I want to take you back into the Old Testament and I want to show you one of the early errors in the priestly tribes. I take you back to the time of the high priest Eli, a human priest who is subject to error. It is indeed true that human priests can err. And that's how you say that word. It's not err. It's err. Thank you, Dr. Pettigrew. I did it in church. Men err. They fall into error. And such was the high priestly ministry of Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. I take you to 1 Samuel, the second chapter. Take you to this place and I begin reading to you of a desperate time. Verse 12. Well, let's start at verse 27. Verse 27, let me just prep the, prep the water here. Then a man of God, verse 27, came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? To offer upon my altar to burn incense? And to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father, listen now, all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? He then questions him and says, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I commanded in my habitation? And honor your sons, now listen, and honor your sons more than me. And honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Now what is he talking about? He's talking about two sons of the high priest, the successive high priest of Israel. And it's laid out before us, beginning in verse 12, of the errant ways of the sinful ways of the fallen ways of the weaknesses of these high priests whose job it was to represent Israel and their people to God and bring them near. By the way, that reference to the ephod, there were 12 stones on the ephod representing each tribe of Israel. So always before them, always on their chest was, I represent Israel these people to God. A privilege to wear it. Look at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were, these are God's word, corrupt. Literal translation. 
Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, sons of the pagan god Bel or Belial, which is synonymous with corruption and transgression against the holy God. They were corrupt. They did not, notice this, they did not know the Lord. You could be a priest, you could be in high in line for high priest because you are of genetically of the line of Aaron and the qualification of belief or unbelief was not present in the law. Therefore, the law made nothing perfect. So there are fallen men who do not even believe and do not even know God who have the privilege of trying to lead people to God and be a mediator for them. There may be a problem here. And here it is. It shows its head. Here's the custom. Here's the habit of these two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. And the priest's custom with the people was that they, when, they, when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take it for himself, all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now pay attention here. And also before they burned the fat... The priest's servants would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give meat or roasting uh, for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer them, no, but you must give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for he, for men, excuse me, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Again, you might say, well, what's happening? I'm actually rather happy that's in your mind, and you ask for, I take you to Leviticus, the third chapter, the offering of a peace offering in the law. How were they supposed to do it that they weren't doing it? Look at verses 3, chapter 3, Leviticus through 5. Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire to the Lord. Listen, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver, liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. And Aaron's son, listen, Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice which is on the wood that is on the fire as an offering made by fire, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. The fat was not to be taken, and they were taking the fat. And if someone reminded them that the law says you're not supposed to take the fat, they would lean on them even to applying force. So even if a person wanted to do it according to the law, the priests were preventing them from offering it properly before the Lord, and it caused the people's heart to despise the Lord and his worship. Notice this is a peace offering. 
Notice this is a peace offering. May I say again, notice this is a peace offering. An offering made by men who know that there isn't peace with God because of their own sin. Because of the separation from the Garden of Eden until today, that men need to make peace with God, and they need someone to stand intermediary between them and God and make this happen. As again in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Leviticus, it says, And the priests shall burn them on the altar as food and offering made by fire for a sweet aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. So they were stealing from the Lord's table and causing the people to do that. So you can only imagine, if we even take it into our time, when those who have been given the charge of leading God's people to him according to his way, and they decide, no, they will do what's best for them. They will grow fat on the people. They will take advantage of the people. They will do what God says right, wrong. And then they are responsible for that wrongness, and they cause people to despise it. Is there any wonder people have stopped coming to church? By and large, people have not stopped coming to church because they are so wicked, but it is because the pastors who have been fulfilling filling the pulpits have become so wicked by and large and cause God's people to despise the church. Some have grown so disillusioned with the church, they either do not go or they've joined the trend of the house church. Well, we'll just meet with us four and no more, or our family, or this small group, because church is so corrupt. And there is part of me that sympathizes with them, but there is part of me that says, look, you're still doing it wrong, and have become the hypocrite, for you have no elders in your church. To teach you the word, so says the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the priest was to make the right sacrifice, and they were making the sacrifice impure and defying God and men, these priests of Eli, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Not only that, when we turn back to 1 Samuel, we realize that where men fail in excess and wanting barbecued meat rather than boiled, and I sympathize with that as well, but too bad you're getting it because this is what God has laid aside for you, they also turn to sexual sin. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 22, Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, adultery and fornication. So he said to them, Why do you... Do such things, for I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. You're causing the people to sin rather than leading them in righteousness. You're causing them to sin. This Weakness in the intermediary, in the mediator between God and man is failing men and failing God and failing themselves in their office. There's got to be something better. 
who will intercede? Well, even in the midst of this, and we understand this to be training for a high priest who will come, a one who can carry the load and the weight of righteousness to stand before God. And we find it even right here in the midst of this despair. Even in the midst of the man of God coming and saying, why do you kick at my sacrifice and honor your sons more than me? The hope comes in verse 25. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. See, we're back in, we're back in the courtroom, but God's the judge between two men. Now notice how we transition from two men to a man and God. Look it. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? If a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father. Listen, because the Lord desired to kill them. The Lord desired to kill them. Who will intercede is asked. And it leads us further down in our text to look at verse 35. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house. And he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. Well, who is that? but this self-same high priest that we have been looking at. Amongst the priests of the Levites, among the priests of men, they are incomplete. We could even say sin has made them, in a, to a degree, incompetent. And that would have to apply to every man who fills any pulpit of God in the church age as well. There's an incompleteness, and there's only one who's complete, who does not have the weaknesses. For the law appoints, verse 28, Hebrews chapter 7, priests, high priests, men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. How much risk do you want in your life? Do you want to go back to the priests of old? Do you want to look toward a mediator from the world of fallen men? Or would you have one like this? As we have discussed, the oath of God created a surety in a high priest in a better covenant. An oath that creates an unchangeable priesthood, verses 23 through 25. An oath that God appointed a fitting high priest for the people who would follow and come to him. And now today, God's oath appoints the perfected son forever. 
the perfected son. Let me read that again. But the word of the oath which came after the law, listen, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. A forever priest, a forever son. Forever and ever. Amen. This is exactly what we're getting to. The writer of Hebrews is fantastic. He's amazing in his ability to hold these ideas so precisely together and build on them, even from where he began. We have the word in English forever here, and the Greek word is eon. Eon of an age. We might say it's an age of a time, of an unbroken age. This word that we've studied before, and we've even looked at before, way back in Hebrews chapter 1. This is where he began. And now he is doubling back to it again, and he will be again, and he has again and again throughout this text been bringing this idea of an age of time to the forefront. A forever age, a forever eon. In this age, in the age before it, there was a risk in approaching God. Because of the finite priests in the time before. But in Hebrews, we began this book by reading, look at Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, now listen, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. There's the sonship again. By his son he has spoken, whom, listen, he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he, God, made the aeons, the ages of time. You might have worlds in your Bible, and that is good because worlds is where time exists. On earth, in the cosmos, the world, time exists. In the universe, it's a scheduled time, isn't it? We are just looking the other day, Vicki and I, when does the sun rise? It starts turning back toward the other direction of longer days, December the 21st, and we start looking, well, how many minutes there? And if you notice, if you're a watcher kind of like we are, that the mornings still keep getting shorter, but the evenings get longer in time. If you have a watch, with time, you notice, time keeps passing, lengthening of days, shortness of days, and we live in time. And by the way, one of the nuances of this word in the Greek of eon is this. It is connected to the word that means to breathe. To breathe. Also that which properly denotes 
that which causes life. Life lived in time. And then the container that contains the life and the time, which of course is the world, the cosmos. Through whom also he made not just the earth. He didn't say earth, not just the stars, not just the heavens, not just the universe, not just the universes beyond the universes and the black holes and the anomalies and every Star Trek thing you can think of. That would have been a limitation of what this meaning in Hebrews brings. That this Jesus who now speaks was also the one through whom God chose to create the world in which life would be lived and which time would rule and he would rule over that time and that people sovereignly because he created it and now he speaks. Forever and ever and ever. So said Handel. Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. Forever and ever. What does that mean? For ages and ages and timeless upon time, he reigns. Through whom he also made the eons of time. In our text we have this perfected forever, perfected throughout all time. In Hebrews 11.3, we will get to this later, and I'll touch on it just briefly today. Same word, translated worlds. Notice verse 3. By faith we understand that the ages of time, the worlds, were framed by the word of God. Jesus Christ speaks. God spoke. Jesus Christ speaks. By faith we understand that time was made by God. And everything that takes place on the world in a sphere of time is encompassed in this word. Verse 5, or verse 6 of Hebrews 5, we read, And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, for eons, according to the order of Melchizedek. So he's priest forever throughout all ages and ages for all time, Amen. He's the priest. It is so interesting that this world eons is used in several places and in the New Testament and by and large in a particular type of writing that we call the doxology. We might just sing the doxology after we have the Lord's table this Sunday. And how does the doxology begin? Praise God. Praise God. That's what doxology means. Praise unto God. And in the doxological writings, in the praise writings of God's men who wrote scripture, they proclaim eons of time and space and place. Galatians 1.3, Paul 
Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, listen, to whom be glory for ages and ages, forever and ever. Amen. Truly. 1 Timothy 1.17. I'm just giving you a smattering. I had them all in here before. We never make it through them all. So just giving you a smattering of these. And so these are my faves. These are my playlist of doxology. 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the king. Notice how time is now going to be brought in. Now to the king eternal. Notice how unchangeableness comes in here. Immortal, invisible, to God who is alone wise, be honor and glory for ages and ages, for eons and eons. Amen. Handel was on to something. I hope we can handle it. That's for free. Take a deep breath and go with me to Revelation. The doxologies aren't, in, aren't ending and they won't end at the end. Listen to the way in which the revelation of Jesus Christ revels in the person of the Son and of God. Verse 9, Revelation 4 Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives life forever and ever and eons and eons. Amen. I added the amen. Revelation 22, 1. At the end. At the new beginning of the heavens and the earth made new, a new age. There shall be no night there in this city. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign for eons and eons forever and ever an absolute age forever we're studying a high priest a forever high priest of the ages creator of the ages dominant in the ages functioning as a priest in these ages of time and space which came after the law an oath established him and appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. He is suitable. We've looked at his fittingness for this position. And absolutely perfected, meaning not that he was perfect in his humanity because of his deity, but because of his walk as a man. I wish I had a man to stand between me and God, but God is not a man. Where will I find a man? I will find a man on the pages of this book of Hebrews of this one who suffered 
on this one who did the things that cannot seemingly be done. We hold in our mind the contrast of this great high priest who is unlike any other who has ever come, who fulfills all of the qualities, all of the qualifications, even down through the stages of time to bring people close to God in his human perfection, his completion, his teleon, teleos, teleao. Hebrews 6, 19, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us. Where the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He also proclaimed in Hebrews 5, 7, in the writing, in the rhetoric, in the beauty of this drawing together of truths, who in the days of his flesh, what? In the days of his flesh, where is the man who will stand between me and God? He is here, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard. And was heard because of his godly fear. And though he was a son, God has appointed by an oath the son who is perfected forever the high priesthood of Melchizedek, though he was a son, yet he learned. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, having been perfected, completed, completely matured in all human aspects, completing all of the law that had gone before, completing every prophecy about this high priest who had even come through the words of the man of God in Samuel, I'm going to give you one who can do this job because your sons stink. And it amazes me in this world where we can have a high priest who will represent us to God that people want to go back to the Mosaic law and suffer the risk. Would you go back to this It was a tutor to teach you about the priest who would come and lay this priest aside? And treat the salvation that he brings and the offering that he brings in his perfection to come before God unassailed and unaccused because he went into the holies for us. Who will stand between you and God? Would you accept the shadow of fallible men? Would you return again to those things that were to lead you to a Christ who will do for you what no man can do, which means you can't represent yourself. If you try and be the high priest for yourself in this age, in this church age before God, you are going without Christ. Why do we need to teach on this in our age? Because we have become flippant about the approach to God. We assume that we can come before him with our sins hanging out and unrepented for, with enmity in our hearts between God, stealing from God's table during the week and taking the Lord's table on a Sunday and say, God's got to accept me. I live in the age of grace 
Well, you have not read about how the grace is applied because it is applied not because you come. It's because he came before God with both the right offering and as the right high priest. And he then can intercede. Who will intercede for me? Job becomes an example of a high priest who would come. For our key point is that this high priest ever lives. Some of you noticed I never treated this part of the text. We missed it, and we missed it because of time one day. And I saw later how perfectly it must be brought today with this text beside it. How is it that we could miss this and not get through it, if you will? Verse 25, chapter 7, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost that we dealt with, those who come to God through him. Listen, since he ever lives. He ever lives through every age and the age to come and from this time forward forever. He ever lives to make an intercession for them. For those who obey him, those who come to him, those who believe. Job was without this, but Job gave us an example. And I want to progress you through God's time of showing the need for an intercessor. Let me do this. Job 42. Job who said, nor is there any mediator between us and then God had him become the first example of an intermediary, an intercessor. Verse 40, chapter 42, verse 7 of Job. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Tenmite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have spoken of me what is not right. You've not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, listen, now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. So here they are acting, if you will, like the fools bringing themselves to God, but God does not leave them there representing themselves. Notice what he does with Job. Notice what Job is honored with. Notice what Job does by way of exampling the work of a priest. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. Listen, and my servant Job shall pray for you. That's called intercession. Job in his finiteness interceded but listen to this, for I will accept him. The three friends were unacceptable. They had not spoken what was right about God. Job was acceptable before God. So on the basis of the acceptance of Job, his friends are released. Watch, lest I deal with you according to your folly. Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, 
went and did as the Lord commanded them. See, that's wise. For the Lord had accepted Job. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. When he prayed for his friends. They had wronged him. And he prayed for them. They had judged him wrongly and he prayed for them. Do you get what intercession is? Moses. Moses interceded for Israel many times, but this is a poignant time. Exodus 32, 11. God says you have to get down off the mountain. He's giving Moses the law because the people, the people are transgressing. God said, my wrath, my wrath grows hot against them because they're sinning against me. And what had they done? Why Moses was gone so long, they approached Aaron, the high priest, soon to be, and said, make us a god. So Aaron said to the people, take the gold off of you and bring it to me. And so they all snapped the gold off their earrings and brought it to Aaron. And Aaron cast it and molded a calf and brought it out of the fire. And they bowed down to worship the calf, saying, this calf brought us out of the land of Egypt. And the wrath of God burned hot. For they denied his works. And said that an idol had done them. And then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Listen, this is so important to understanding Hebrews. Lord, Moses said, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? He pleads, Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains? And to consume them from the face of the earth. Moses appeals like in a court of law. Turn from your fierce wrath. And relent from this harm to your people. What is the appeal? What law does he turn to? He turns to the person of God. And the word of God. In the covenant promise of God. Watch. Remember Moses says. Abraham. Isaac. And Israel, Jacob, who you renamed Israel, your servants, listen, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Remember your covenant promise. So the Lord relented from the harm which he had said he would do to his people. Who can make peace with God, you sinners? Who can stand before the wrath of God and placate him? Not Moses. Moses interceded. 
The promise of God made by himself for Israel themselves is the basis of their release of the mercy he shows. Because the name of God is connected with the promise of God. Don't let them say this about your name. Protect your name by preserving your people. You know, when you come to God and you want a mediator to go before God, do you send him with your list? Okay. Going into trial. You're going to represent me. I've got a list. I've been pretty good. I'm better than him. I've been keeping track. I'm better than most of those Christians. I'm not going to call myself a Christian. I am a Christian, but I'm a good Christian. I do the Christian stuff. Now take this in and intercede for me. You're playing the fool. On what basis do we want an intercessor interceding? Listen to the prophet Isaiah 53. This messianic prophecy that also is a prophecy of an intercessor. Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul unto death. And he, has, he was numbered with the transgressors. He wasn't a transgressor. He was numbered with the transgressors as he hung on a cross with two thieves. And he bore the sin of many. Listen. And made intercession for the transgressors. There's risk in approaching God with your list. But the intercessor approaches with his own sacrifice made once for all. And he approaches God and you with him. Not with your list of things done, but with the list of things Christ did. Hung for our transgressions. And based on the promise of God, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved according to the new covenant promise. If you're standing there with a great high priest, you beg him to remind God of his promise. And you remind him you don't deserve the promise. You don't deserve the promise of life everlasting forever and ever you deserve hell and punishment and pain forever and ever. Lord, remember your promise. Be a high priest. Bring the blessing. In number six, every priest was to bring this blessing. 
I realize there's a sect of so-called Christianity that's stolen it and try to act as priests. This was to be done under Mosaic law, and it points to the coming high priest. Listen. Number 622. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. How can we have peace? With God. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. Let me sum this up with some words from Hebrews and then from John. Hebrews 7, 19, For the law made nothing perfect, nothing complete. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That better hope is based on a better high priest who serves and ministers a better new covenant through which we have peace with God. For he ever lives to make intercession for those who come to him and obey him. John says it best and I close. That means don't close your mind. That means open your mind to this. It's the good stuff. John says, love has been perfected. Guess what Hebrew or Greek root that is? Teleos. Love has been completed among us in this. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. But there's risk in approaching God. Yes without an intermediary, Jesus. But love has been perfected among us, completed among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. In this world, we are as he is. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. Are you afraid of approaching God? You are so if you have your own list and you represent God by yourself. You're a fool for a lawyer and a jackass for a client. But if you look to Him, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, the fear of approaching the holy God who is a flaming fire, but who is the God of grace, a God of mercy. 
as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Listen, because fear involves torment. If you're being tormented right now, you're approaching God wrongly without your high priest who's reminding God of the promises. The promises made to you. And when you said, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe he took my place on the cross and died for my sins, then the new covenant promises are yours. Forever. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. There should be no fearful Christians. You've been made perfect in love. What love is that? What love am I pleading for? Yes, I've loved my brethren so well. Liar, liar, pants on fire. You have not. You haven't loved your wives well. You haven't loved your husbands well. You haven't loved your children well. You haven't loved your neighbor well. You haven't loved your friends well. We're all failures at this. But this love we claim. We love him because he first what? Loved us. Lord, you love me. Therefore, I love you. Remind him that the Lord loved me. Remind him that the Lord promised. Intercede for me. I don't know how. Do it. I'm with you. I'm with Jesus. It's been perfected forever and ever and ever lives to make intercession for you, Christian. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father God, we who are bound by this time that you have made pray. Let us seek the eternity that you put in our hearts. Let us look for nearness with you, not through fear trying to escape you, Lord, but through confidence. We do not have a high priest who cannot understand and relate to our weaknesses. We do have one that can. For in all points he was tempted just as we are yet without sin. Let every Christian here therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in time of need you promised because you first loved us. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.